Let's turn now to pray before Paul comes to give us our message for this morning. Father, we do give you praise, wondrous praise, because you alone are God. You are the uncreated one, as we sang this morning. You are our Savior. You are our Deliverer. You are our Redeemer. You alone are the giver of life. And you are holy and pure, and you cannot endure evil. You cannot look at wrong. Understanding this, Father, we confess that we have much of our own sin still dwelling in us, selfishness, arrogance, and pride. We can be tempted to be lovers of pleasure and comfort rather than lovers of you. And because of this, we neglect the needs of one another and we sin against one another. And truly, Lord, as we read in our confession this morning, it is against you only that we have sinned. And to you only we are truly accountable. But we give you thanksgiving because you have promised to blot out our sin. The sin that is ours was put on Christ on the cross, and we give you thanks for that, for taking our sin away from us so that we could have union and righteousness in Christ with you. And though we have our hope in eternity with you because you have done this for us, we still face many trials and difficulties in this life. We face sickness and suffering, pain and sleepless nights, stressful circumstances that distract us. And all these things let us trust in you. Give us an understanding of your will so that we would be filled with all the knowledge of you and all your spiritual wisdom and understanding that you give us so that we would walk in a manner worthy of you, that we would be pleasing to you, that we would be bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of you, that through all of these things we would be strengthened by your grace, which is the power that you give us for our salvation. And it's all according to your might so that we would have endurance as we look to you having patience and seeking to have all of our circumstances faced with joy and thanks because you, Father, have qualified us to share in the inheritance. We give you praise for all of these things. And we also ask that you would give us heart to hear your word, that you would give us moldable wills and consciences to what your word proclaims and calls us to do, and also hearts that would be moving from selfishness to praise and service as we consider what your work does in our own hearts. I pray for Paul now as he comes to preach, that your spirit would embolden him and give him clarity so that your word would stand out above all things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Jeremy. We are in Acts chapter 3 this morning. Acts chapter 3. If you would join me in standing for the reading of God's word this morning. Acts chapter 3. We're going to be reading the entire chapter this morning. All 26 verses. If you have your Bibles there, 
Open Acts chapter 3, and I will read. You can follow along as I read. Why don't you look at me, make sure that you have it. If you have it, look at me. We all make sure we're on the same page here. All right. Give me a smile. Good. Everybody's at least faking happiness this morning, so that's good. Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, Why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers... I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you 
by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This story that we look at this morning, this narrative in Acts chapter 3 is one of my favorites. This is an incredible story, an incredible miracle. But as I've said to you a few times, in the book of Acts you'll see a pattern develop where you'll have a miracle followed by an explanation, followed by an interpretation, and then based on that explanation there will be a response of the crowd. So you'll see this often, event or miracle a sermon or an explanation that follows that miracle, and then a response of the people that hear that sermon. And this is what you see here in Acts chapter 3. We will look at the response next week in chapter 4. But here in chapter 3, we have the event, the miracle that takes place, and then Peter's explanation of that event. The reason I make note of that here is because a lot of times when we come across a miracle in the Bible, we just focus on the miracle itself and we make much of that miracle or we may interpret that miracle or press that miracle and and get more out of it than we need to get out of it. And so we want to be careful not to press too much the event. In fact, if you want to understand the event, look at Peter's explanation of the event. That's why he gives it to you. If you want to understand what happens in the miracle, look at what Peter says. So here this morning, we have the event. We're going to look very briefly at the event, the miracle itself. And then we're going to look at Peter's explanation of that event. And then he closes his explanation with an appeal, an appeal to the people listening. So we have the event, the interpretation or explanation of that event, and then an appeal made to the people listening. Let's look first at the event. I love this story. It's a wonderful story. Here you have Peter and John going into the temple. Like we saw last week, this is what the people of God, the earliest church, was committed to. They were committed, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, and they were devoted to one another. And they daily ate bread together. They daily fellowshiped at the table together. And they daily went into the temple and observed the prayer times of the temple. They did this together. And this is one of those occasions. Peter and John, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, that's what it means there, the ninth hour. 3 o'clock in the afternoon, they're going into the temple for one of these prayer times. And there at the gate, the beautiful gate is called. There's a lot of debate about what the beautiful gate is, but I am fairly certain, 99% certain, that it's on the eastern side of the Temple Mount. So the eastern side would be significant because this is the side where the Messiah would come and enter in when he comes to deliver Israel, where he comes to, uh, to claim victory for Israel, he would enter on the eastern side. And so I believe that gate is on the eastern side. One of the things that tells me that is that they go into Solomon's porch. That's where they go and, and Peter does his explanation. That's on the eastern side of the Temple Mount. So I believe it's on the eastern side there, which is significant. They're entering onto the, into the eastern side of the Temple Mount, and there at the gate they encounter a man who is lame. He's crippled. He can't walk. And he's been this way since birth. This man sits daily. He has someone daily carry him 
to the temple gate and lay him there at the temple gate where he can ask for alms, for money. He is dependent completely upon other people. He can't work for himself. He can't provide for himself. He can't take care of himself. Someone else always has to carry him everywhere he goes. And daily, he sits at the gate asking for alms. And the community and their generosity, their grace to him is to give him money so that he can exist, so he can live. And if they don't give him alms, he will die Here we have a man who is lame, and he is an example for us. He is a living dead man, a man who lives in a state, a perpetual state of death. I want you to hear that. He's he's an example to us of what we encounter, too, in this world. The world we live in has many living illustrations of the death that sin has waged upon God's good world. For we know that when God created the heavens and the earth, he looked at everything that he had made and he said, it is very good. Disease and illness, deformity, malformity, Cancer, all of these things are living illustrations to us of death and the curse of death that sin brings upon the world. God did not create his world where men would be lame. He did not create his world where there would be death. He did not create a world with disease and sickness and illness. What what is our response when we encounter these unseemly, unpleasant realities of the fallen world we live in? And they are everywhere. They are in abundance. What is our reaction when we encounter ugliness and deformity? What is our reaction when we encounter lameness and deafness and muteness and blindness? What is our response When we encounter a living illustration of death, they're all around us, and I think they're good for us. I was raised in a home where my dad owned a funeral home. My brother and I lived across the street from the funeral home, and from the earliest days, Memories of my dad are associated with the smell of an embalming room. No joke, that's what, that's what I associate with my dad. I can still smell it right now as I would hug him when he came home. I can smell it in his clothes. Death was a part of our life every day. Now you may say, that's weird. Oh, sorry for you, poor, poor kid. No, it was, it was good for us. Because we, as children, we had to deal with this reality of death. I think we are far too comfortable trying to eliminate or eradicate these living illustrations 
of death. But they are good for us. They are our instructors. Every time I stand at the head of a casket, and I've, I've stood at many, 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 many caskets in my life, every single time I have to deal with death. And you know what? I hate death. Every time I stand at a casket, I'm reminded I hate death. And I want to be rid of it. I want to be done with it. My heart breaks when I see the brokenness and the effects of sin upon the world. And your heart should break too. Here we have at the entrance to the temple, the place of worship for the Jewish people. You see the picture there at the, at the entrance to worship for the Jewish people. We see this lame man sitting asking for alms and he's a dead man. He's a living illustration of the curse of sin upon the world. And here, Peter and John walk into the temple and they see this man. And it's interesting what it says. Their eyes are fixed upon him. They look at him. They gaze at him. The idea is their eyes are fixed on him. And he asks them for alms. He asks them for money. Look at Peter's response. Well, first he says, look at us. Look at us, Peter says. They see him and they say to him, look at us. And he turns and fixes his attention now on Peter and John. He's expecting to receive something from them. He's expecting them to do something for his condition. Namely, give him some money. But verse 6 says, Peter said, I, I love this, I have no silver or gold. I don't have any money. But what I do have, I give to you. I don't have any money, man. How many times have we said that? I don't have any money. I forgot my cash back home, right? No, he says, I I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. And look at what he has. This is important. In the name of Jesus Christ. Now, don't pass by that. What does it mean that he calls him Jesus Christ? Christ is the the word for king, the anointed one. In the name of King Jesus is what he's saying. In the name of King Jesus, the one of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, we're used to this, if, we, if we've read the Gospels, we're used to this kind of thing happening. You know, there's a lame man or a blind man, there's someone who's diseased, and then Jesus shows up. Well, not in this case. Jesus doesn't show up, or does he? You remember, the story of Acts is the continuation of Jesus' ministry. The apostles now are carrying out the ministry and the mission of Jesus to make for himself a people for his kingdom by the power of his Holy Spirit. 
So we see very clearly here, the apostles, they continue, they continue in the ministry of Jesus. Peter says, in the name of King Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Peter and John are ministering in the name of Jesus, the King, his authority, his person. They represent King Jesus. They are his kingdom representatives. And look at what occurs. Verse 7, Peter took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately, his feet and ankles were made strong. Verse 8, and leaping up, leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Can you imagine it? Can you see it in your mind's eye when you, when you hear that? Can you see it? Here's a man who from his birth, has been crippled, unable to walk, been carried everywhere he's ever gone. He's never taken a step. And there he is laid at the temple gate where he lays every single day. And he sees Peter and John going in. And Peter and John see him. And they say, look at us. He looks at them thinking he's going to get some money. And Peter says, I have no money, man. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus, the King of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he takes him by the hand. And he picks him up. And he raises up. And he begins to walk. And immediately, his ankles and his feet are made strong. And he's able to walk. What would you do if you were able to walk for the first time ever? You do exactly what he did. He begins leaping, leaping, walking, and praising God for God's work to heal him. This is very clearly an allusion to Isaiah 35. Let me, let me read Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35 details when God comes to rescue his people from exile, when he comes to rescue his people from captivity, it will be accompanied with the eyes of the blind being opened. It says, then when God comes, the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute Sing for joy. The terminology here that he leaps is the same word, same idea found in Isaiah 35. The lame man leaps like a deer when God's salvation comes to Israel. We see that God, too, wants to restore his world. We encounter the death, the living illustrations of death, everywhere we go in this life, and it breaks our heart, and we have this inclination to fix it. We want to fix it. We want to be rid of it, and that's a good inclination. That's a good desire. What that shows is that in us, we want the world to be restored. We want things to be the way they should. We want God's good world to return. And so does God. And when God saves his people, he will. He will put an end completely 
to the death that has cursed his world. And here you see God doing that. The lame man leaps like a deer and all the people see it. Look at what it says. Verse 9, And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple. They recognized him because they went in daily. They saw this is the same guy who daily sits out at the temple gate. Now he's walking and leaping and praising God. What's happened? And they were filled. They were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. The people saw him and recognized that it was the man they were accustomed to seeing every day. They were filled with wonder and amazement while this man clung to Peter and John. I love that. He clung to Peter and John. He's walking for the first time in his life and the people are utterly astounded at what they've seen and he clings to Peter and John because they've given him his life. They cling to them. He clings to them. Well, this event needs to be explained. And now a crowd has gathered for that explanation. So we too move to that explanation. What does this all mean? What's the significance? Look here in verse 12. When Peter saw it, he sees the crowd gather. He sees the crowd fully amazed and wondering at what they've seen. When Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, look at what he asks them. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you wonder at this? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Uh, Because he's lame. Every day we've seen him lame at the temple gate, and now he's leaping. What do you mean, why do we wonder at this? Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or, then he says, why do you stare at us? There's a little wordplay going on with the eyes there. Why are you looking at us? As though by our own power or piety, we made him walk. Why are you wondering at this? And why do you look at us as if we had anything to do with it? He's challenging their sight. He's challenging what they've seen and challenging what they're attributing it to. In essence, he's saying, your, your eyes are on the wrong people. Your eyes are in the wrong place. It's not our power. It's not our piety. You're ready to attribute this great miracle to us. And yet, it has little to do with us. And look at what Peter says. He quotes Exodus chapter 3 or this description of their God. Look at it. Verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. This is a clear allusion again to Exodus 3. Do you remember what happens in Exodus 3? Do you remember the story of Exodus 3? Exodus 3 
is where God meets Moses for the first time. And he tells Moses, I want you to go and deliver my people from bondage. I want you to go and deliver, save my people from Egypt. And he introduces himself to Moses this way. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of your fathers. And do you remember what Moses says to him there on the mountain? He's meeting him here on the mountain of Sinai, the Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. You remember what Moses says or asks? When I go to deliver your people, whom should I say sent me? What is your name? You say you're the God of my fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but what is your name? He says, I am that I am. When you go, tell them my name. Tell them I am that I am has sent you. And here Peter is. He's connecting that Old Testament story to the present reality, what they are witnessing with their own eyes. He's connecting the two. Now Peter stands on the temple mount. He stands on the mountain where God's presence is meant to dwell. And there on that mountain, he is going to communicate to God's people the name by which they must be saved. He has come again for the deliverance of his people, and Peter wants them to know the name that will save them. As Moses delivered the people from Egypt, Jesus has come in his name to deliver God's people. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, he says, glorified his servant, Jesus. So he says, why are you looking at us? Why do you look at me or us as if our own power or piety has anything to do with this? The God of our fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he has glorified his servant, Jesus. Means he has lifted him up. He's exalted Jesus. Get your eyes off of us and put your eyes where they belong. On the servant of God whom he has glorified, Jesus. Oh, but what did they do to Jesus? He was glorified in their presence. Your eyes belong on him. But what did they do to Jesus when he came into their presence? Look at it there. You, verse 13, halfway down through verse 13, you delivered over Jesus and denied him in the presence of Pilate when Pilate had decided to release him. He reminds them of what they did with Jesus. Pilate was ready to release him and you denied him and instead asked for a murderer to be released in his presence or in his place. You denied, look how it describes Jesus here. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And then don't miss this description. Look at it there. Look at the text. And you killed 
the author of life. That word author could also be translated prince or ruler of life. God has glorified his servant Jesus in your midst. And you denied him. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you in his place. And you killed the author or the prince, the ruler, the originator of life. What blindness. What blindness. You may say, well, I would have never done that. You know the thing about blindness and lameness and deafness and muteness? Do you, do you, you, know, you know the thing about physical blindness and lameness? You wake up every day knowing that you're blind. You wake up every morning knowing that you're lame. My mother, I'm talking about my family a lot today. I don't mean to do that. My mother, at seven years old, most of you know, because of a vaccine, a polio vaccine, she was seven and she was getting a polio vaccine to go to school. And she contracted polio. And from seven years old until this day, she's almost, I mean, she's nearing 70, a couple years away from 70. She has been on crutches and braces ever since she was seven years old. You don't have to tell my mother that she's crippled. She knows that. She wakes up every day with that reality. Why? Because she can't walk. And she has to put braces on her legs to stabilize her. And she has to use crutches every single day of her life. Now, for my brother and I, we grew up with it. We were used to it. We kind of joke with her and give her a hard time about it, you know. And she, she, she has done an amazing job as a mother and as, as a person. But my point is this. I'm not wanting you to feel sorry for my mother. My point is this. Every day she knows that she's crippled because she has to put her braces on. You know, a blind person every day knows they're blind because they have to negotiate a physical world with blindness, not able to see Someone else has to help them. But you know the thing about spiritual blindness and spiritual lameness? People don't understand they're blind. They don't understand that they are unable. Here you see a wonderful illustration of absolute spiritual blindness. Jesus was glorified in their midst and they asked for a murderer in his place. They killed the author of life. What blindness. And yet, even in this room, there are some who have rejected Jesus and in their heart have spurned him who is the author of life you are blind. In fact, we are all blind spiritually. We all are in need. We cannot see. God must do a work to cause us to see. We need him to do that work. 
Scripture says that Jesus is the life and the light of men, but men loved darkness rather than light. I mean, I mean, seriously, if you asked someone who was blind, would you like to see? I can make it where you can see. What would be their answer? If you asked this lame man at the temple, I'll make it where you can walk. What would be his answer? Absolutely. Absolutely. Please, heal me. And yet men love darkness rather than light. The one came who could heal their blindness and they rejected him. Have you rejected him? Are you ongoing in your rejection of him? He is the author of life. He can restore you. And that, in essence, is what Peter wants to communicate to his crowd on this day. He wants to communicate to Israel this very thing. He says, you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. You killed the one coming who came to you, and we are witnesses of this. And his name, look at it there, his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health, this wholeness, this soundness. He's healed him. He's made him whole. The faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now, get this. This is what's happening in this miracle and in this explanation. The lame man is an object lesson for Israel. The lame man is an object lesson for Israel. He represents Israel's state. They are living yet dead. The one who could heal them and bring them back came to them to restore them and the author of life and they killed him. But Peter wants them to know that they have yet still an opportunity. Now this this verse here is where most people focus, right? In his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. I I want you to, to hear this is not a formula for how you heal people. A lot of times people take these passages and miss the entire point. This is not a formula for how you, you heal people. And maybe you have the question, well, well, did Peter have the faith or did the man have the faith? It was, I think, clearly the man who evidenced the ability or the willingness, rather, to believe. You have a good couple of cross-references that are really helpful here. We're not going to turn there, but Acts 14 Paul also heals a lame man in Acts 14, and it says that he looks intently on the man and sees his faith, sees his willingness to believe. Jesus also, in Luke chapter 5, do you remember the story of the lame man who was brought to Jesus by his friends and lowered through the roof? And Jesus sees the man, and he sees their faith. And because of the faith that he sees, He says, your sins are forgiven. And the 
religious leaders say, who do you think you are? Are you God that you can forgive sins? And he says, what is harder for me? To say your sins are forgiven or to say rise up and walk. But so that you will know that I am who I am. He says to the man, rise up and walk. And he gives the man the ability to walk. Why? To prove his point. And in the same way, if we focus too intently here on who had the faith or is this a formula for healing, we miss the point. Peter is saying the lame man is an object lesson. And here's the question. Will Israel be made whole? In fact, the question is for all of us. Will we be made whole? Where do we find wholeness? Where do we find that salvation that we long for? Where do we find the answer to death and all of its impact upon the world? Where do we find that answer? It's in the name of Jesus. I said just a moment ago, that inclination to fix the world, that's a good inclination. It's a good inclination for us to want to fix things. Do you want to fix poverty? Do you want to fix illness and disease? Do you want to fix those things? I do. What's going to fix those things? You and I can't eradicate the world of disease. We can't do that. We want to do that. It's a noble effort. I encourage you, wherever you at, wherever you live, to try to address the evidences of death in your life. I encourage you to uh, address those issues in your life, but we can't eradicate death. In fact, if we were to try to eradicate death, we would have to eradicate sin. And we can't. But Jesus has. Jesus has dealt with sin. And you know what the effects of that are going to be? Because he has dealt with sin, he has killed death. He has won the victory over death. And the world will experience a total restoration from death. All the things that break our heart about this world, he, he is going to fix. Now, it doesn't mean that we just sit idly by. I think it's right for us to try to address, again, those evidences of death. I think it's right for us to try to redeem those, those evidences of death in our life. We'll talk about that again here in just a moment. But understand where our hope is. It's in Jesus And where is the hope for those who experience the effects of death in this life? It's in Jesus. You want to fix death, proclaim the name of Jesus. That's where salvation is. And this is the appeal that Peter makes to Israel. And this is glorious. I want you to look at this appeal he makes starting in verse number 17. And now, brothers, he says... Now, brothers, 
I know that you acted in ignorance. Remember what he just said. Jesus came to you, God glorified him in your presence, and you killed the author of life. But now look what he says. I know that you did what you did in ignorance, as did your rulers. Now what is he talking about, the ignorance there? What is the ignorance that he's talking about? Well, this is not that they didn't have an opportunity to understand. It's that they failed to perceive. They failed to understand. They were given an opportunity to understand, but they failed to understand. It's like, uh, it's like a teenage girl who is getting ready for prom, and she wants to wear her mother's earrings. She dresses up to go to prom, and she wants to ma- wear her mother's earrings, and she begs her mother, and her mother says, okay, I'll let you. I'll let you use the earrings, but I want you to understand. These, these are priceless to me, precious to me. They were your grandmother's earrings. She handed them down to me. These are very important earrings to me. Take care of them. Yes, mom, yes, of course, of course, yes, 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 I'll do that. She goes off to her prom. Halfway through the night, she takes them out of her ears because they're hurting her ears, and she lays them down on a table and runs away because her favorite song is being played, and she doesn't want to miss that. And the earrings are gone. She failed to understand. It wasn't that she lacked opportunity. She had the explanation. She had been given all the information she needed, but she lacked the ability to understand. She failed to perceive. It is your job to understand. You've got to understand what you've been given. And here, the people of God, the Jewish people, they are given the prince of life, the author of life, and they fail to understand who he is. He says, your ignorance, I know you did it in ignorance, not because you didn't have opportunity, but because you failed to perceive, you failed to understand. You acted in it. I know you acted in ignorance, but then look at what he says. He says, your guilt, your culpability has not thwarted God's plan for you. Look at what he says. I know you did this in ignorance, as did your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Your guilt has not ruined God's plan. It's not thwarted God's plan. Your lack of understanding and your undeniable culpability, your guilt, has not ruined what God has in store for you. God has accomplished exactly what he had planned and foretold by the mouth of his prophets that his Christ, that his king appointed for his people. Remember, God's kingdom is God's rule over his people uh, through his appointed king. His appointed king, Christ, Jesus, would suffer and die. And that's exactly what has been accomplished. This was according to the divine plan God's plan has not been thwarted, Israel. Even by your own ignorance and by your own guilt, it has not been thwarted. And that, he says, gives you an opportunity. Look at there in the text. Verse 19, he shows them their opportunity. Israel, you have yet another opportunity. Look at it. 
Verse 19, repent, therefore, and turn back. When you hear that command to repent, do you hear negative in that command? Repent, turn back. Does that seem negative to you? No, it's not negative. There, there is a glorious grace in this command to repent. I have a saying that if you, if you know me for any length of time, you know I'll, I'll say from time to time, you always end up where you're headed. So many times I've met with people who have their head in their hands and they keep saying to me over and over, I can't imagine how I got here. I can't understand how I got here. How did I get to this place? You always end up where you're headed. Repentance, the offer, the command of repentance is an offer to turn around. You don't have to go down that road anymore. You don't have to head down that path. Turn around. It is a life-giving command. It is a life-giving offer. Repent. Turn back. And, and it is so life-giving to the people here listening because they are guilty. And he says, you have yet still an opportunity. Repent. Turn back. And look at what he says will happen if they turn back. Number one, he says, your sins will be blotted out. We had a liturgy today that was focused on that idea of blotting out the sins. It's talking about the atonement, Christ's work to atone for sin. Repent and turn back, and your sins will be blotted out, completely expunged, completely erased, completely forgiven, atoned for. We owe a debt to God because of sin that we could never pay. Christ has paid it. Repent that your sins may be blotted out. Christ has made atonement in his sacrificial offering. He has made atonement for any who would have it. Turn from your sin, that your sin may be blotted out. And then second, he says, your sins will be blotted out and the times of refreshing will come. That the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. This is, is talking about the movement of salvation that they are experiencing, they're witnessing, they're seeing. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. The washing of regeneration, of new birth, is, is taking effect. God is bringing his people into his rest. He is cleansing them. He's washing them. The times of refreshment will come upon you. He will wash you. He will cleanse you. He will give his spirit to you. And you will enter into his rest. Repent. See how life-giving that command is? Repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out 
and that the times of refreshing may come upon you from the presence of the Lord. And look at the third one, that he may send the Christ, the King appointed for you, Jesus. Now, now, now get the context here. These people have just been told that they, through their ignorance and guilt, through their blindness, they have refused to acknowledge the one who God has glorified in their presence. They have refused to acknowledge him. And now Peter is saying, repent and turn back. There's still time. Repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that the times of refreshment will be poured out on you, and that he may send the king appointed for you. The kingdom can still be yours. The king can still be yours. Turn back and he will come for you. You will be his people. It says that he may send the Christ appointed, appointed for you, Jesus, whom, he says, heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things. There's that picture. Until the time he makes all things new. Until he makes all things whole. Repent. Your sins will be blotted out. The the times of refreshing will come upon you. You'll be cleansed. You'll be refreshed. You'll enter his presence. And he will come again for you as your king. Heaven has received him for this time until the established time or until the time of the restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Do you you see, beloved, that we live between these two comings of Jesus? He has come and died and made atonement for our sin. His spirit, as he has ascended to the Father, he has poured out his spirit and we are experiencing his refreshment. We experience the times of refreshing, of salvation, the washing of the new birth and of regeneration. And we look forward to the day where the king appointed for his people, for God's people, will come again and he will be the king of his people and all things will be restored once and for all. We live in the in-between time, but we know for sure where everything is headed. We know where everything's going. And that's what we ought to look at and live for. We've been given everything. He's not withheld anything from us. Peter, though, gives them one more warning here. He says, here's what's at stake if you choose to not listen. Look at it, verse number 22. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Now that's talking about Jesus. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be, notice verse 23, it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Again, may I ask you, what is it that's so abhorrent about Jesus? What is it that's so abhorrent about Jesus? Was it his holiness? Was it his righteousness? Was it the miracles that he did? What was it all the good that he did for people? Was it was it Jesus himself? No. It was his word. 
and the implications of his word. Men love darkness rather than light, and they refuse to listen even to the one who was sent from God as their Savior. He says, all those, every soul who does not listen to Jesus, and listen to that prophet God said was coming, shall be destroyed from the people. And here, really important, he is defining Israel, true Israel. He is defining true Israel by those who listen to Jesus and receive Jesus who has come for their salvation. That's how true Israel is defined. He says, if you do not listen to that prophet who came, if you do not listen to the one sent from God who came, if you do not listen to him, you will be destroyed. That is utterly cut off from the people. And here he extends to Israel an opportunity. You had an opportunity and you rejected the author of life. You killed the author of life and asked for a murderer in his place. But now you have another opportunity. Repent and turn back. Your sins will be blotted out. Times of refreshing will come upon you. He will be your king, and he will come and restore all things. But if you do not listen, if you do not heed, you will be cut off from his people. You will not be his people. And then he makes one final uh, appeal. Look at it in verse, or in, in, uh, verse number uh, 24. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days, you, verse 25, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So here's what he's saying. Here's your opportunity. Don't miss it. You are the sons of the prophets. You are the heirs, Israel, of the prophets. You are, should be the beneficiaries of what Jesus has accomplished. You should be the, the inheritors of the promises. You're the sons of the prophets, the sons of the covenant. It is through you that God wants to bless all the families of the earth. He wants to spread his kingdom throughout the entire globe. It's through you, Israel. Do not neglect to hear this this message of Jesus. Do not neglect the Messiah. He shows them here their rightful place as God's people for God's plan for the entire world. In this, he shows us that the new faith, the new faith of the Christian community found here in Acts is actually the old faith. This is what God has been accomplishing all along. Now, I I need to be finished, but I have just a couple of applications. First of all, the question is for Israel here in this passage, will you be made whole? Will you be made whole? Will you receive the Savior who has come? Like the lame man who was made whole, by faith in the name of Jesus, you can experience salvation. Your sins can be blotted out. The times of refreshing can come upon you in that God will send his spirit and God will dwell in you. 
God will make you his people. And he can be your king. But you must repent and turn from your sin. Repent and believe on Christ and he will make you whole. And then for the Christian, I go back to the illustration here for us, this wholeness that we desire, this this restoration of all things that we so desperately want. How are we involved in that? How are to we be involved in that? When we see brokenness, when we see death and the evidences of the curse upon the world, what is our involvement with that? I think we have, we have a couple of different extreme reactions. Some people say, well, Jesus will fix all that when he comes back, and so I'm just going to wait for Jesus to come. We have some on the other side of the spectrum who say, well, what we've got to do is we've got to actually, we've actually got to oppose all the effects of death and of sin, and we've got to eradicate death. We've got to eradicate illness and disease poverty. I don't think either one of those extremes is correct. But here's what we do have as God's people. Because of the redemption that we have experienced in the name of Jesus, we have an opportunity to redeem. Just as, just as the lame man is a living illustration of death and the impact of sin upon the world, we have an opportunity to be living illustrations of the redemption and of the life he brings, the restoration to which he is taking all things. When we understand that our role isn't to eradicate poverty, you can't do that, by the way. In fact, Jesus said you can't do that. The poor, he says, will always be with you. You can't eradicate poverty, but you can't address it, and you can work to illustrate Christ's redemptive work through your interaction with it. Let me give you a really let me give you a really hard illustration. And maybe this will help us as we conclude. One of the one of the effects, my wife and I were talking this last week of whether or not we want another child. The answer was no, by the way. We have eight children. Pregnancy, childbirth, is extremely hard. It is painful. It is extremely difficult. Did you know God did not create his world that way? Did you know that? The difficulty that takes place in childbirth is a direct result of sin. Not, not particular direct sin, but of the effects of sin upon the world. Difficulty in childbirth is a direct result of the curse of sin upon the world. As part of that, people experience barrenness. People experience the inability to have children. Did you know that was not how God created the world? God created the world for man to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That is what he created. But that is not what we experience. We experience barrenness. 
we experience difficulty. We experience the effects, the impact of sin upon the world. How, how is a Christian, how is a Christian to interact with this living evidence, this living manifestation of the death that our world lives in? I think we have an opportunity as God's people to redeem it. To redeem it in such a way, not to eradicate. We cannot eradicate barrenness. We can't do it. And we also can't eradicate the difficulty of childbirth. We can't do it. We live in a world cursed by sin. So we experience pain. We experience despair. But... As God's people, we have a hope that transcends the death of this world and we can redeem our pain. We can redeem our suffering. We can redeem childbirth. We can redeem barrenness. This is an example of how we as God's people can interact with these evidences of death in such a way to proclaim, to illustrate the redemptive power of the gospel. Now, in saying that, I want you to understand what our role is. We have an opportunity to bring beauty into a world that's scarred by ugliness. We have an opportunity to bring redemption into a world that suffers under the curse of sin. But in all of that, our hope and our aim is for the souls of men, for the souls of people. That's what we want to see redeemed. And just like Jesus said, do you think it's easier for me to say your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? What he's saying is it's much more difficult to forgive this man's sins. But so you know that I have the power to do that, I'll do the easy thing which you think is hard and I'll raise him up and so he can walk. The difficult miracle is the redemption of a man's soul because they are blind. That is the work he has called us to do. And so in our redemption, in our redemptive work, in how we encounter a world where death is a reality and barrenness is a reality and pain is a reality and suffering is a reality, as, as we interact with that world, as God's people with a hope that transcends this world and death, we need to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, proclaim salvation in his name. We don't want to be just a people that do a lot of good things for a dying world and never preach the redemption that they need, the blotting out of their sins, the refreshment that God wants to pour out upon them, the spiritual realities that God wants to pour upon them, and the fact that he will be their king and reign with them as his people. We don't want them to miss out on that. I think it's important for us as, as we meet this week in our small groups to ask ourselves these questions. How are we interacting with death in our world? How are we serving to illustrate the redemption that Christ brings? And how are we using all of these things to proclaim the name of Jesus in a world that needs to hear that name? Father, we thank you for your word and for this illustration, this object lesson that is given to us.
Father, we are a people who know very well pain and difficulty and suffering. We hurt. We experience death. We experience loss, grief. Pray that you would help us. Help us to know that it is right to grieve. It is right to grieve over the fallenness of our world. And that as we grieve, we would seek to illustrate your redemptive power. Not to run and hide from death, but to run towards death as your people. And that in all of that, you would use us to proclaim the name of Jesus, the salvation that he brings. I pray for people in this audience today who do not know Jesus. They have not repented and turned from their sin. I pray that you would show them today the opportunity that they yet have even now. Maybe their last opportunity. But they have it right now. They would turn from their sin so that they would experience that blotting out of their sins. That they would be brought into the rest that you have provided for them spiritually and that they could look one day with hopeful anticipation of the day you're going to restore all things and death will be done once and for all. Pain and suffering will be no more. Barrenness of the womb will be a thing of the past. I pray that you would work that work of salvation in hearts of people even today, this morning. We give you the praise and the glory for that. In your name we pray, amen.